Welcome to the World Beyond the Tale, the Page a Day American Gods podcast. I'm your host, James, and today we're reading page 85. Coming to America, 1721. The important thing to understand about American history, wrote Mr. Ibis in his leather-bound journal, is that it is fictional, a charcoal-sketched simplicity for the children or the easily bored. For the most part, it is uninspected, unimagined, unthought, a representation of the thing and not the thing itself. It is a fine fiction, he continued, pausing for a moment to dip his pen in the inkwell and collect his thoughts, that America was founded by pilgrims, seeking the freedom to believe as they wished, that they came to the Americas, spread and bred and filled the empty land. In truth, the American colonies were as much a dumping ground as an escape, a forgetting place. In the days where you could be hanged in London from Tyburn's triple-crowned tree for the theft of twelve pennies, the America became a symbol of clemency, of a second chance. But the conditions of transportation were such that, for some, it was easier to take the leap from the leafless and dance on nothing until the dancing was done. Transportation, it was called, for five years, for ten years, for life. That was the sentence. You were sold to a captain and would ride in his ship, crowded tight as a slaver's, to the colonies or to the West Indies. Off the boat, the captain would sell you on as an indentured servant to one who would take the cost of your skin out in your labor until the years of your indenture were done. But at least you were not waiting to hang in an English prison, for in those days prisons were places where you stayed until you were freed, transported, or hanged. You were not sentenced there for a term, and you were free to make the best of your new world. You were also free to bribe a sea captain to return you to England before the terms of your transportation were over and done. People did, and if the authorities caught you returning from transportation, if an old enemy or an old friend with a score to settle saw you and peached on you, then you were hanged without a blink. I am reminded, he continued after a short pause during which he refilled the inkwell on his desk from a bottle of umber ink from the closet and dipped his pen, and that's our page. Here we get our second Coming to America chapter. Mr. Ibis is here officially. You can recall back to page 54. He was the fussy voice talking in Shadow's other dream where he was in the the land, or the museum rather, of forgotten gods. Here he's narrating our second Coming to America story. It's this portion as well as other future moments that lead some, including myself, to believe that he's the narrator that continues to show up throughout the novel. There's certainly moments where the narratorial voice takes a bit of a turn where it's not quite Shadow's perspective or anyone else's perspective, and it's a sound enough theory that I've gone along with it, at least for this reading. A representation of the thing and not the thing itself is a nod to the platonic ideal. Very briefly, uh, it's a philosophy that states that the things we see in the physical world are man's approximation of the ideal of the thing that we hold in our minds. Uh, most commonly, we can imagine a perfect circle in our minds, but to draw a perfect circle freehand is next to impossible. Although with a good bow compass, or even in a digital computer age, you can make a perfect circle real easily, so it's probably not the best example. My, my example when I was talking about this in my notes to my wife was shoes. You have an idea of what shoes are in your mind. There's a sole, probably a tongue, perhaps laces with some nice aglets at the end. Maybe Velcro instead. Uh, bring that back around, that's another genericized trademark. Velcro is actually a trademarked term. But the the idea that you pop up in your head of shoes is not not the the representation of shoes in the real world, and there's going to be a, a difference between the two. And then also, you know, maybe there's high heels. They don't have laces. They don't have aglets. Although high heels with, with 
laces would be pretty kick-ass. The Leafless is a name for the Gallows, a book of slang and its... Oh, nope. The Book of Slang and its analogs past and present, a dictionary, historical and comparative, of the Herodotus speech of all classes of society for more than 300 years, compiled and edited by John S. Farm. Dear God, that is a long title and I love it, points to a poem by Edward Buther? I should have really researched how to say that. Edward Bilewyther Lighton. Bueller? Oh, it's Bueller. Edward Bueller Lighton, entitled The Love of Our Profession, or The Robber's Life, as the source for a quote here. Oh, there was never a life like the robber's, so jolly and bold and free. And its end, why, a cheer from the crowd below, and a leap from the leafless tree. The volume I found on Google Books was from 1830, and it was part of a three-volume set of the novel Paul Clifford. You, you may know the author or the title of the book, but you might not. You are familiar with it, though, in some way. The first line of Paul Clifford begins, It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals when it was checked by a violent gust of wind, etc., etc. So... Edward Bueller Lytton gave us that phrase as well as leap from a leafless tree. This is a gallows reference. We get a few of those as we go forward here. Basically, the page talks, though, about the fiction of American history that's taught to school children. And that's also something that comes up again, I think, in about a week. We'll be talking about it. Wednesday has his little speech about it. Ibis also mentions Tyburn's triple-crowned tree. Tyburn was a village ridiculously well-known for public executions. The first of these was recorded in 1196. The Tyburn tree itself, though, was erected in 1571. You could hang many people from it at the same time. There was, at one point, 23 men and one woman hanged all at the same time on June 23, 1649. It was placed in... The Tyburn tree was placed in the middle of the roadway and thus acted as a landmark and a warning to travelers. The final execution was carried out November 1783, a full 200 years before I was born. I'd also be remiss if I didn't further point out that Tyburn Tree shows up in the dreams of a minor character in the Sandman books, and Morpheus spooks the fellow by mentioning that he knows that his dreams are haunted by Tyburn Tree. I think he does mention that it was he came back from transportation, much like this. It's in the Brief Lives arc, and... I only remember Tyburn Tree because it's such a it's such a strange name to my American ears. Transportation is mentioned, also known as indentured servitude, and most familiarly used to be sending prisoners and other such folks to American colonies, but it was also used to form the Australian colony from 1787 until 1868. And the page ends with Ibis reminiscing, but also writing down some sort of purplish prose. Neil Gaiman himself prefers a nice fountain pen, so I think that's probably somewhat of an influence for uh, Ibis using the inkwell pen, although it also could just be that he's very old-fashioned. Umber is the color of the ink. It's a brown or reddish color similar, similar to ochre, which was discussed on the previous Coming to America, CMYK 018-2861, It's also one of the first colors used in cave paintings aeons and aeons ago, along with carbon black, the red ochre, and also yellow ochre. I was researching a bit, and I don't even know how I got down this rabbit hole, but there was a brown pigment similar to umber known as mummy brown, 
Now, I thought, oh, it's it's a color that is meant to look like the color of mummified flesh. And oh, how naive I was. Mummy brown was made up of myrrh, white pitch from trees, and ground up mummy parts. So, what the fuck, 16th century artists? What am I supposed to do with this knowledge now that I have it? Jesus Christ. To quote from Wikipedia, Mummy Brown eventually ceased being produced in its traditional form closer to the 20th century when the supply of available mummies was exhausted. Not for reasons of respecting the dead, or maybe, hey, let's not grind down human fucking remains to make a pigment, but they just ran out of fucking mummies. Wonderful. It does seem worthwhile mentioning just because... Ibis is part of the Egyptian pantheon, and I know we haven't had a lot of reason to talk about them yet, but we will as the novel progresses. I mean, I guess we could just talk about it in relation to pigments. I could start researching Egyptian pigments that weren't made out of mummy pieces. So uh, Ibis says near the end of the page that if you were seen in peached on, then you would be hanged. Peached in this case, means to inform on, which is pretty obvious from the context, I think, but I don't know that I've ever seen it used in this way. Um, Google points to Old French, impeciere, impede, then uh, it came from there to Middle English, upeach, and English, impeach, to then Late Middle English. It's uh, a shortening of a peach, apparently, and it has certainly dropped off in use since the mm, probably 1700s or so. It's one of those words, though, that I love to have an excuse to look up because I just have never, I don't know that I've ever seen it in that way. I'm trying to see if there's anything interesting else of it, but probably not. Persian apple. Huh. A peach was considered a Persian apple. That's something. That's not related to this, though. Ah, so Shakespeare, Henry IV, I'll peach for this. James Joyce, never to peach on a fellow. (laughs) Daniel Defoe, squeal, tattle, sing. Oh, all good words. But yeah, nothing of particular interest. You can get in touch with the show at theworldbeyondthetale at gmail.com or on twitter at worldbeyondpod thank you to julian granganache for his version of saint james infirmary blues which we use as our theme song and thank you for listening i'll be back tomorrow with another page and remember only the gods are real